0: Well, good morning, church. We have a lot to cover because I'm going to actually go back and pick up the rest of chapter three, as I promised last week. I don't want get too far ahead of myself there, but I uh, hope you weren't planning lunch at noon today. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everyone, no one finds that funny except me. We're going to be looking at this passage here in a moment as we've got a lot to cover. It's good to be together, isn't it? to worship, to study God's Word. A man was traveling by foot to a far-off town, and as the sun was setting, the man had some trouble seeing what was ahead of him, and he fell into a pit that he was not able to get out of. Many people came along and saw this man in the pit, and they had their own thoughts about it. There was a sensitive person who first came by and he saw the man in the pit and said, I feel for you down in that pit. A Christian scientist came by and said, oh, you only think you're in a pit. A specialist in meditation said, just relax and don't think about your pit. A self-righteous man came by and said, what did you do wrong to land in that pit? A narcissist came by and said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A county inspector came by and said, do you have a permit for that pit? An optimist said, cheer up, things could be worse. A pessimist said, get ready, things will get worse. An idealist said, the world shouldn't have pits. A realist came by and said, now that's a pit. You know, when we find ourselves in that pit and those times of struggle, it, it, there never seems to be a shortage of others' take on it, right? In hard times, we are in desperate need, not of trite answers, but of meaningful words of hope. And that's what our present sermon series has been all about, living on hope, living on hope. And there may be some here this morning, there may be some watching that are barely hanging on. Life's just been hard for you, one thing after another. The world seems to be spinning out of control, and we can easily feel like we're on the losing end of things. And as we've been making our way through 1 Peter, we see that Peter is a realist about suffering. He has spoken to the reality of troubles that will come to those who follow Jesus. Peter has been addressing unjust suffering, undeserved suffering. And as we come to chapter four today in 1 Peter, it's as if Peter now says, Let me give you an example of that. Let's take a look at all the good God did through the undeserved suffering of Jesus Christ. And if good can come out of unjust suffering in Jesus' life, then the good, God, the good God did through the undeserved suffering of Jesus, he can also do in your life and the unjust suffering in your life. Good can come out of that. Let me state it this way as the bottom line this morning. If good can come out of unjust suffering in Jesus' life, then good can also come out of the unjust suffering in your life. Embrace that, church. Believe that. And that's the word of encouragement from this section we're looking at today in First Peter. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles or on your phone or whatever you use to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. I invite you to follow along with me as we look at these words here. What I think you'll find as we look at this is that if you're in a season right now that you aren't even sure you can make it through, this should be some encouragement to you. You may be at a crossroad in your life right now between suffering for doing good and giving in to sin. Perhaps you're here today and you're disillusioned because you thought the right choices always pay off and you can't see the payoff for doing good. Rest assured, what you're going through right now may feel purposeless, but a good God has a good purpose for it. If good can come out of unjust suffering in Jesus' life, then good can also come out of the unjust suffering in your life. I hope you're there in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now notice that first word there in verse 1 points us back to what he said previously, for says, therefore. And I believe that therefore goes back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 that I promised last week that we would get to this week. So here we are. Not gonna be easy stuff, all right? You're gonna have to really be on your game today. Speaking of game, the first heading this morning is game is over. Game is over. Now, First Peter 4.1 ties directly to chapter 3 verse 18. So I want to go back to chapter 3 now in verse 18. Follow along, Peter says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus experienced the ultimate and undeserved suffering. He was beaten to the point of being unrecognizable. He was executed on a cross as a criminal when he deserved none of that. He is the example of enduring unjust suffering. What might have looked senseless to all who were watched, it had a purpose. His suffering was to what? Bring us to God. Bring us to God. Now, Peter could have easily gone from chapter 3, verse 18 to his words that I read previously in chapter four, verse one. Flow of thought wise, he could have done 318, jumped over all this other stuff, this, 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 this strange words that we're gonna be reading here in a moment and just gone to chapter four, verse one. The train seems to leave the tracks here a little bit. All right, end of verse 18, follow along. He, Christ, was put to death in the body But made alive by the Holy Spirit, through whom also he, meaning Christ, went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and at the right is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's all clear, right? We're all set? Just move on. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Peter here, he mentions Christ's death. He then drops in days of Noah. He ties it to baptism. And then he ends with Christ being seated at the right hand of God. And some of you are still back in verse 19. You never even left. Verse 19 and wondering, who are the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach? When did he go and preach to these spirits in prison? What in the world is going on here? Now, this is where Bible scholars go nuts. Maybe one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament to understand. Someone suggested there are well over 100 interpretations of this passage. I didn't look at all of them, Obviously. Martin Luther, after studying this passage, openly admitted, I still do not know for sure what Peter meant. <laughs> well, that doesn't give me a lot of hope. Well, I'm not going to give you all the, all the interpretations, but let me give you my take on it. All right, full disclosure here. I changed my opinion from what I had in the beginning of the week to the end of the week, and I reserved the right to change it again. All right. What do we know here? All right, what do we know? These spirits in prison are connected to the days of Noah in some way, right? Verses 19 and 20, reach back to the days when sin ravaged the whole earth. Things were so bad that even fallen angels came to earth, lusted after the women and set out to corrupt mankind. By impregnating these women. Go read Genesis 6. 2 Peter 2.4 helps us, us, helps us out a little bit. But it seems then. That these spirits. These fallen angels. Who pushed back their boundaries. Were confined to a prison. Until the time of judgment. The end of the time as we know it. And their fate is sealed. And they're kept in this prison. We also know. That in some way Christ preached to them at some point. But we're not told what it is he preached, exactly the timing of his message to these spirits, these fallen angels who were put in this holding cell. But we must keep in mind the context of these words. Like real estate, it is all about location, location, location. What is the location of these verses to what Peter has been saying? We shouldn't miss it. Peter's mention of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison is in the context of suffering as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been talking about. That how do we live in a society hostile to our faith? How do we make it when we feel like we're on the losing end of things? Those are the questions that we've been answering in this study, particularly the last few weeks. So Peter's encouraging them and us with these words. Jesus went and preached to these evil power players. What did he preach? What did he proclaim? My guess My guess is that after Jesus died, and either before his resurrection or after his resurrection, but before his ascension, he went to the holding place, this prison of the fallen angels, these spirits and he proclaimed his triumph over sin, his triumph over evil, his triumph over all the power players, Satan and his demons. He went there to proclaim his victory, game over. Game over. We might picture it. We might picture it, at least, oh, don't we. I might picture it as the last play of the game The touchdown for the win, and Jesus goes down to this holding place, and he spikes the ball. Winners, game over. Game's over for sin, game's over for death, game's over for all the power players. Evil has been dealt its final blow when Christ died on the cross, and he was resurrected. Jesus has defeated evil in the spiritual realm. Church, we can't lose. We can't. Hallelujah. It's encouragement to Peter's readers and to us. Noah lived in despicable, evil times. Now, often our picture of those days of Noah, and I'm going back to the days of flannel graph, <laughs> right? Some of these nice little pictures, all these animals are in the ark, all nice and safe. Kind of like, you know, resembled Care Bears. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, it really resembled that time there more like Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, it was terrible in in the world then. I mean, we think it's bad. It was terrible then. Noah lived in these times. He was surrounded by unbelievers and by wickedness. He was the bright spot in a dark world. That's been Peter's point all along this letter, has it not? How do we live in these days marked by evil? We sometimes feel like Noah. We see all this corruption going on. And just like the days of Noah, God waits patiently. God gave the people time to repent. 120 years. God waits patiently. Sometimes wish he didn't. And then in our story, of course, eight people go into the ark where they're safe from the flood. That tells me God will get us home. Like Noah in the ark, safe from the destruction of the water, Peter says you're saved through the waters of baptism. Now don't get confused here. Don't get confused here. The plain passages of Scripture make it clear that we cannot add anything to our salvation by what we do. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Exclamation point. Baptism is a symbolic expression of the heart's decision to trust in Jesus Jesus for salvation. Or as James Dunn puts it, baptism is a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken to the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sins. You see, it wasn't the ark that ultimately saved Noah. No. It was his trust in God that saved Noah. And it was the ark that was symbolic of that trust. Same with baptism. All right. Let's not miss the application in all of this. I know it's hard. Let's not miss the application. Noah was living in the midst of a moral cesspool. Living in a time when evil seemed normal, and it was no excuse for him to simply go along with it. He was obedient, he was faithful to God when others must have thought he was a nutcase. Building an ark on dry land. What are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. Why? It's going to rain. What's rain? <laughs> I don't know, it might have rained before then. That just sounded good. <laughs> you check it out, Jay it out. Not going to be life or death on that one. But but what's the point? We're to be obedient in the times that we live. We're to be faithful. We're going to probably stick out when we're faithful. Let's live above the standards of the world. Now remember, what Peter's doing here, he wants to strengthen them in hope. Their hope is in Christ. And so look to the example of Noah, who in the face of ridicule was saved. He wants to tell his readers, and he wants to tell us, hang in there. You belong to Christ. Christ is triumphed. His work is completed. He now sits in power and authority at the right hand of God. Game over. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Second heading. Suffer, not sin. Suffer, not sin. All right, I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 1 again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Arm yourselves. Peter draws upon the the military metaphor of a soldier taking up weapons and preparation for battle. Listen, church, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battlefield. Arm yourselves. One word in the original. It's really an action word, it's a doing word, that we're to prepare our minds each day for the attacks that might come up against us, that we're going to choose suffering over sin if we have to, that we're going to arm ourselves every single day. And just like most of us in this room would not leave our house in the morning without our phones, don't leave our house without arming ourselves with Christ's attitude. I would be prepared for suffering that might come today. Because I'm going to choose that over sin. Back in, back in Portland, where I lived there, there was an uh, elderly neighbor who had put in an alarm system in her home. And I don't know what kind of experience you have had with alarm systems, but similar to car alarms, there were more false alarms than actual incidents of break-in and always go off in the neighborhood and would cops would come and we'd have to do the same thing over and over again. And it went off quite frequently and I don't recall one time that it actually uh, served its purpose. And when she'd go away for a period of time, she'd ask that I watch her house. That meant I'd have to go inside her house. So she wanted to show me how to activate and deactivate the alarm. And so she walked me through it. She goes, when you get in, you have to go over, push these buttons and you, you, set it, you shut it off. And then before you leave, she'd say, you need to arm the alarm. That meant punching punching in a certain code, racing to the door, and getting out in a matter of 30 seconds. Arm the alarm. Christ follower, do not walk out the door without arming yourself. Arming yourself with the same attitude of Jesus Christ, choosing suffering over sin. This suffering was meant to break the power of sin in our lives. Done with sin, Peter says. What's that mean? Does it mean we can live without sin in this world? Well, I'd love to be a pastor of perfect people. (laughs) It's tough to be a pastor of imperfect people and tougher still to be an imperfect pastor of imperfect people. I mean, it gets messy. So it's not saying, as much as we might want that, that we can live a sinless life from this time on. But it does suggest, though, done with sin, our desires have changed. We don't live for the things we once lived for before we came to Christ. That's why he says in verse 2, as a result, he does not, meaning us, we don't live the rest of our earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. There must be a change in our life. There has to be a clear break from sin. Have you made a clear break from sin? There was this little boy who fell out of his bed in his sleep, and so his dad went into the room, he picked him up, put him back in his bed, and he asked him, son, you know, what happened? How'd you fall out of the bed? What happened? The little boy replied, well, I fell asleep too close to where I got in. That's not a bad description of it. And you know what? That's what some of us have done. We're kind of hanging on to some of the things that we're staying too close to where we lived over here. Before coming to Christ. We're hanging on to those things. No, 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 he's saying done with sin. Clear break from sin. What area is that for you? It's different than for me. John Stott puts this rather accurately when he when he speaks of how we're to live as Christians. He says it's on the screen every Christian's biography is in two volumes. Volume one covers all of life before that day when we united with Christ in his death and as we came to him in faith. Some of us have a long volume one with many things in it as we are converted in adulthood. Some of us have a slender volume one converted in our childhood and a longer volume two. Okay, so what he's saying there is all those who know Christ have a two-volume biography. And the second volume begins on the day we meet Jesus and we lay hold of the gift of salvation and the spirit is placed in our lives. And so, follower of Jesus, you are in volume two now. You are in volume two now. The moment of temptation in that 15-second interlude of whether or not to go the way of Christ or to go the way of self, the key to success in that 15 seconds is remembering that you don't live out of volume one, you are in volume two. Verse three, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And Peter then mentioned six behaviors not fitting for volume two living. It's not an exhaustive list, and I'm really not gonna go down and talk about each one. Uh, I think what Peter does is he paints a picture of volume one living, and he gives some examples, debauchery, which is just living without any moral restraint. He says lust, which is passions that uh, have a strong influence on your behavior. And then the NIV, it says drunkenness, orgies, and carousing, which in Peter's day were not only drinking parties and, and carrying on in wild immorality, but they were also banquets and feasts that showed up in their pagan worship. That's why he mentions, lastly, detestable idolatry. All wasteful living, he says. I mean, there are many other practices he could have mentioned as part of volume one living, right? You could have added some yourself. But it's the lifestyle believers have been called out of. And so whether your volume one is thick, he says, or it's thin, you sinned a lot, or you sinned a little, he's saying it is sufficient. We never need to say, I need a little more time to sin. And I remember as a teenager going, I'm going to do all these other things first. I want to sin as much as I can, get all that fun out of the way, and then I'm going to follow Jesus. He's saying, you don't have to do that. Why invite all that destruction in your life? Wastefulness. That's what he says. And sometimes we we fall into this just one more, right? Just one more. Comic strip, B.C., the caveman is, is, is leaning on the boulder, which reads trivia test. And B.C. is giving the test uh, uh, to one of his uh, deadpan prehistoric friends. He says, here's one from the Bible. What were the last words uttered by Lot's wife? And without a moment's hesitation, his friend replies, she said, forget your fanatical beliefs. I'm going to take one last look. <laughs> now, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but that's the sentiment. One more the call to you this morning and to me the call to you is if you're stuck in that vicious cycle of one more take God's Word seriously and say enough because what will hold you in bondage to a particular sin is the one more syndrome one more binge one more drink one more outburst one more juicy gossip one more time, one more look here. And listen, any amount of past sinning is enough. You don't have to spend your days looking back to volume one, which has been called out of. You don't have to keep looking back to the regrets that go with volume one and the hurts and all the guilt of volume one. I liken it, and I'm sure I borrowed this from someone else, of, of as if you were driving... With a huge uh, rear view mirror standing in the way of you seeing out of your front windshield. covers the whole windshield. And each time as you try and look out through the front windshield and see what is ahead, this huge rear view mirror is in your way. Each time you try and look ahead, your eyes get fixed on what's behind you. What's going to happen? Well, obviously, you can't drive that way. You're going to go off the road. You're going to drive into someone else. It's not going to be pretty. And so I ask the question spiritually now, in what way is the rear view mirror obstructing your view of God's purposes for your life? How has God been stirring your heart as of late to get your eyes off your past and look ahead to what God has in store for you going forward? You're in volume two now, believer. There's there's so much more to be written. Don't Give ourselves to wasteful living. Peter says, instead choose to live the rest of your days, the rest of your life for the will of God. Whether that's three years, five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years. Live the rest of your life for God's purposes. No matter the regrets you have and look in your rearview mirror, you get a new start. Golfers call it taking a mulligan. You scratch the score, you start again. You have a mulligan. You have a mulligan. All right, be about living, volume two. Suffer, not sin. Third heading this morning, stand out. Stand out. Verse four. Look at verse four of uh, 1 Peter 4. They, meaning those we once hung out with, those who think this life is all there is. They think it's strange that you not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Now the phrase flood of dissipation Basically, it means wastefulness. I mean, he might still have Noah's flood in his mind as he's writing this. A flood? But it means wastefulness. Life in volume one is a wasted life as you chase temporary pleasures. And the normal expected path of a follower of Jesus Christ is a different lifestyle than those who do not know him. So when we're living out of volume two, what's going to happen is we're going to stand out. People are going to think you're strange. You're wasting your life living for Jesus. You're missing out. And so the pressure to conform to the ways of the surrounding culture, it's real. Going along with the world and the things we used to do seems easier sometimes, doesn't it? Than swimming against the current. Years ago, I enjoyed doing some whitewater canoeing. Usually class two or three. I, I liked my life too much to try on four, five, or six. But one time while canoeing on the Saco River in Maine, my friend and I were doing the canoeing. He was in the back, I was in the front. My wife was in the middle as a passenger. She remembers this trip not so fondly. I won't give you all that. And we were going along quite well, maneuvering, trying, you know, saying this is a great time, you're going to really enjoy it. We're going around the rocks, we're going along with the current when the two of us, me, me and my friend, we got our signals crossed and the front of the canoe hit the rock dead on. The canoe turned and then it flipped. It was at that moment when standing against the current took on a whole new meaning. Everything's coming at me. And we had to, as the water splashed against us, we're trying to, t- you know, we're trying to take hold of the, the canoe and all the other stuff that fell out of the canoe and pull it over to the side to safety. And it took everything in us to fight against the current. Everything. It is so much easier to go with a current than standing against it. I thought when I became a Christian, I had nothing to do but just lay my oars at the bottom of the boat and float along. Boy, was I wrong. It wasn't long before I discovered that volume 2 living meant going against the current a lot. The current of the world is what? Get as much fun out of life as you possibly can because once we die, we die all over. Verse 5. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, I just got to clear up one thing here, just to make sure we're not confused on this. Because in verse 6, it speaks of the gospel being preached to those who are dead. That is not suggesting, as some would say, That's referring to Jesus descending into the holding place into Hades, and he offers a second chance to all people who die. That's not saying that. Scripture does not teach that there's a second chance for people to receive Christ after death. You can can check it out. But Hebrews 9.27, I'm going to give you one example. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, once judgment. So Christ's sacrifice wants to take away our sins. So in our passage here, what's he saying here? Verse six, it reads in the NIV, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. Now the word now isn't in the original, but it's supplied for us at least in the NIV, and I believe it's the correct sense of the meaning here. It's saying that the gospel was preached to the ones who since have passed away. They had the gospel preached before they died. They had opportunity. Now, it's really written, I think, to reassure these believers that even though their fellow believers have died, they have hope of eternal life. Because what was going on in that day is that opponents of Christianity were coming along and rattling these believers. And they were saying things like, Ha! What good is it for your friends to suffer for Jesus' sake? Look what it cost them. They all died. They say, no, no, they they had the gospel preached to them before they died. They're they're, going to argue here as they come to to the Christians. They're going to say, you live for Christ. You miss out on all the fun, all the partying, and then you die and you go to the worms. We eat, drink, and be merry. We die and go to the worms. It's all the same. Well, while it looks the same to all in the end, Peter reminds his readers that God will get the final words. When the army of Julian, the apostate, was on the march to Persia, some of the soldiers got hold of a Christian to torment and torture this Christian in, in, in brutal sport. And after they wearied of doing that, they looked into the eyes of, of this Christian and said to their helpless victim with infinite scorn in their voices, where now is your carpenter God? The prisoner looked up through pain And blood and agony. He said, where now is my carpenter God? He's building a coffin for your emperor. (laughs) Kind of puts it in perspective. Where's your God now? The unbelieving world may ask. Little do they know. They must give an account to this God. And church, at times it seems as though we are on the losing side of things. The unbelieving world may mark what we're living for as a waste as they go about amusing themselves to death. The 2013 film Gravity, Dr. Ryan Stone, played by Sandra Bullock, is a medical engineer on her first shuttle mission. And she's with veteran astronaut Matt Kowalski, who's played by George Clooney. On a routine spacewalk, the shuttle is destroyed by a freak hail of space debris, leaving Stone and Kowalski completely alone. According to one description of the film, it says, they are tethered to nothing but each other and spiraling out into the blackness. The deafening silence tells them they have lost all communications to Earth and any chance for rescue. As fear turns to panic, every gulp of air eats away at what little oxygen is left. But the only way home may be to go further out of the terrifying expanse of space. Now, after that film's release, the, church, uh, the German magazine Der Spiegel asked 69-year-old German astronaut Ulrich Walter to fact-check the film. And Walter said that after becoming completely untethered, Sandra Bullock's character would have died. And the interviewer commented and said, well, that doesn't sound like a very nice way to go. Drifting through nothingness in space, waiting to die. But Yulek replied, no, no, when you're, sl- when you're slowly running out of oxygen, the same thing happens as does when you're in thin air at the top of a mountain. Everything seems funny. And as you're laughing about it, you slowly nod off. He says, I experienced this phenomenon in an altitude chamber during my training as an astronaut. At some point, someone in the group always starts cracking bad jokes. And a person who dies alone in space, he says, dies a cheerful death. In other words, your situation is hopeless. You're slowly dying, but you think it's funny. Church, this world is off its oxygen. It's off its oxygen. It's dying. And they think it's all funny. The wasted life is to live for this world only. Because not one thing, not one thing you do for Christ will be wasted. Not one moment of suffering is wasted. Choose suffering over sin. arm yourselves with that attitude this week as you go out into the world let's pray God thank you for giving us clarity in terms of what really matters in life and even if we got lost in some of the details and interpretive issues I pray God what didn't get lost is an application to our lives personally and all the chaos the upside-down world in which we live that is downright maddening at times. I pray that we can stay on track with you, on course to live our days for you. That's a life worth living. Give us that encouragement, speak into our lives in a personal way around these words, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.